You're probably familiar with the story of Chris Gardner. Will Smith plays him in the biopic, The Pursuit of Happiness. That's H-A-P-P-Y-N-E-S-S if you hope to watch that later, though I'm about to spoil it for you. Um, It's a true story, or based on a true story, and it takes place in the 80s. Uh, Chris Gardner, he's a struggling medical sales, uh, medical device salesman. In the beginning of the film, he's married, they have a young child, his wife leaves him because she's tired of his business, not doing well. He gets in a bit of trouble, and because of that, with work, him losing that income, he and his young child end up being homeless. And so there's scene after scene of them standing in line trying to get into a homeless shelter. They miss out on it. They sleep on a bus there's, or sleep on a train. There's one scene in particular, if you remember, that's really gripping um, where they end up sleeping in a bathroom as someone's trying to get in. And it's kind, of, it's kind of the low point of the film. And then Will Smith, or Chris Gardner, he's able to uh, impress a partner at a brokerage firm and he secures an internship but it's an unpaid internship. That's where you work and they don't pay you. And he's competing against 19 other guys for a full-time job as a stockbroker. And if you know the story, of course, he works really hard. Um, He's pretty creative at work, so he doesn't, he's able to to maximize his work without losing time. He impresses the partners. He gets the job um, as a stockbroker. He ends up starting his own brokerage firm one day, um, becomes a millionaire. He is a motivational speaker now. It's kind of the quintessential rags-to-riches story, right? Gardner is able to overcome what seems to be insurmountable odds as he moves from intern to CEO, from poverty to riches. It's difficult to find stories of the opposite, at least that you'd want to go out of your way to hear, where someone moves from riches to poverty. Uh, You're unlikely to watch a movie like that. It would be called The Pursuit of Depression. Um... What Chris Gardner achieved is the human dream, or what some people might call the American dream. Our text this morning shows us the kingdom paradox. It's the human dream flipped upside down. The exalted one becomes lowly. The rich one becomes poor. And it's his humble obedience that leads to his vindication and his exaltation. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 5 through 11. And if you will, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." You can be seated. Our our big idea this morning, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, he is worthy of all honor. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done, he is worthy of all honor. More fully put, Jesus, because of who he is, as God the Son incarnate, the God-man, truly God, truly man, and because of what he's done, his work, 
his perfect obedience to the Father on behalf of his people, even to the point of death on a cross. Because of who he is and what he's done, he's worthy of all possible honor and glory and praise forever. Beginning in, and we'll consider the text basically in two halves. There are basically two movements in this narrative. We'll consider first the humiliation of Christ and then the exaltation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ and the exaltation. Beginning in verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And what attitude is that? It's a disposition, an orientation of humility. If you recall, this uh, passage actually begins in verse 27. Paul is telling us that as citizens of heaven, we ought to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what displays that worthiness of our king is Christian unity. It's Christian in that there is um, stability, there's an advancing of the gospel, it's rooted in Jesus, and there is this unity, it's, there's this otherworldly love and commitment and care for one another. Okay, so there's this perseverance. What's required for perseverance is our unity. What's required for this unity is humility. The laying down of your rights, the considering others as more important than yourselves, the looking to others' interests, even when it means uh, it might cost you your own interests. And so we're probably prone to think that such humility is so extreme, so unattainable, and maybe even undesirable. Paul is basically telling us to treat ourselves as our other members' servants or slaves. Well, far from being a shameful thing, Paul is going to give us a picture of humility that's worth emulating because it's godlike. It's a glorious thing that God the Son humbles himself, and in doing so, he's exalted. And that's what this text is about in essentially two parts the condensation, the humiliation of the son, and then his exaltation. So adopt the same attitude, that is this mindset, this disposition of humility, as that of Christ Jesus. And then he's about to show us what it looked like. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Jesus, existing, present tense, in the form of God, possessing equality with God. That is, Jesus was and is truly God. He fully expresses the nature of God such that to see the Son is to see God. We read about this elsewhere in the New Testament, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus Christ is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten of the Father. He exists in the form of God. That means whatever it means to be God is true of Jesus. He fully possesses it. Our statement of faith reads this way about God. It says that he is inexpressibly glorious in holiness, infinite in being in perfections and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. That is is Jesus. You see, to understand the humility of Christ, you don't begin with the manger. You don't begin with his forced migration as a child or his manual labor. You don't begin with the cross even. You begin with his godness. In eternity past, that's what Paul's doing. 
He's moving us before the beginning, pre-time even, when all that there was was the blessed Trinity, existing in holy, beautiful, joyful, loving, glorious communion. To understand Christ, you don't start from below, that is his humanity. You get there, but you start from above, his deity, his eternal godness. Jesus exists in the form of God. He possesses equality with God. Of course, in nature, but also here especially in status and in rights. If there was everyone who was worthy, it was he. If there was everyone who need not consider other interests, it was he. If there was everyone with rights to cling to, it was Jesus. And yet, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. This verse gives us a glimpse into what uh, theologians call the covenant of redemption. In eternity past, the Godhead is planning, so to speak, um, redemption, and the Son is willingly submitting to the behest of the Father that he would come to save a people for himself, and he knew what it, what it would mean, becoming a human in all of its limitations and weaknesses, and especially the pain and punishment of the cross. But rather than clinging to his rights, he said yes. As human history is unfolding, the plan of God's unfolding, on the eve of the conception of Mary's wound, he could have clung to his rights, but he said yes. His equality with God in status, in rights, in prerogative, it wasn't something to be exploited, to be taken advantage of. I play my kids all the time, you know, at different things. Basketball, soccer, board games, video games, and I almost never lose. <laughs> I take advantage. I exploit my dadness. <laughs> I am a grown man, and I rarely let them win. This is really funny. Haddon and I, we were about to play this game, and he looked at me, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, you're going to kick my butt. It was so cute. I was like, it's such bad trash talking. I'm like, no, no, no. You got to say it the other way around. But he knows. He understands. I exploit. I take advantage of my dadness. The word picture here, and yours might translate it saying that he didn't view equality with God as something to be grasped. Okay, not something to be held onto, to be seized. You might be tempted to think of a toddler, you know, holding onto a toy, screaming, mine, 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 not wanting to share. And of course, that's immaturity, but it wouldn't have been so with Christ because he was not obligated to save us, not externally, not internally. He was not required to become a man. He didn't have to suffer for the sins of those who hated him. He didn't have to give up the comforts of heaven. He didn't have to relinquish his rights. It's more like someone clinging to their natural God-given rights. So you might think of someone being mugged at gunpoint and they're pleading, just please don't kill me. And there's nothing wrong with that. You would expect them to do so. They are clinging to their rights as a person to live. Well, Jesus, as God, possessing equality with God, has rights. The right to rule, to be served, to be worshipped, to be honored, to be loved. The right to be immune from poverty and pain and punishment, humiliation, the death on a cross for the sins of others. God, the Son, existing in the form of God, having equality with God, could have insisted on those rights, but he didn't. He could have taken advantage of his 
equality with God, but he didn't. Verse seven, instead. There's an obvious contrast here. God the Son, eternally and truly God, being equal with God in rights and worth, could have, could have insisted on that equality instead. The twist here is that God does what is unexpected. It's not that God does what's ungodly or uncharacteristic of him. You see, his humility is an expression of his deity, of his godly character. You see, friends, what uniquely qualified the job, the son for the job, was his divinity. Who else would be willing to condescend so low? Who else would live a perfect life? Who else could atone for sins? The humility required for the task was divine. On the flip side, is there anything uglier, more fleshly than pride? The pursuit of selfish ambition, the considering yourself as more important than your neighbors, the looking only to your own interests. For a man, viewing equality with God as something to be reached for and grabbed and seized. This is, of course, the first and most enduring sin. You recall Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent was most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. In the garden, man grasps to be like God and he falls. In the incarnation, the son doesn't grasp onto his equality with God, to his rights, but he gives them up that he might fall, not in sin, but in humiliation, that he might save a people for himself. So existing in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. Rather than exploiting his divinity, he empties himself. First, let's talk about what that doesn't mean. God the Son emptying himself doesn't mean he emptied himself of his godness, like he could just pour the picture of godness out, okay? He didn't give up his divinity. He didn't cease to be God. He didn't give up any of his divine attributes, okay? There's no subtraction happening here. He, did, he doesn't give up his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his love, his goodness, his wisdom. The Son continues to exist or subsist as in his divine nature as God. God the Son was and is and always will be truly divine. God is triune and that can't, that can't change for a second, not for 30 years, okay? Or God would cease to exist, the cosmos would seek to exist. Consider Christ even as the, as the agent of creation. We read in Hebrews 1-3 earlier that he um, holds all things together by the power of his word. If that's your job, you can't stop doing it, even for a second. We all take breaks from work if it's lunch um, or break or in the evening. At, at minimum, there is a time where you are sleeping and you're not working. That can't be the case with God the Son. You don't put up a sign that says, out for lunch. Or like a vacation email, out for incarnation. Be back in 30 years. He emptied himself. It's a metaphor for God the Son making himself nothing. And verse 7 tells us how, 
by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. The text doesn't say that he exchanged the form of God for the form of a servant. Rather, he empties himself, he makes himself nothing. He's lowering his status and his rank. How? By becoming a man. Whereas he had always existed and does exist in the form of God, well now God the Son takes on, he assumes, he becomes a human. So this is, it's emptying, but it's not by subtraction. The Son doesn't cease to be God. He doesn't give up any of his divine attributes. It's not emptying by transformation. It's not as though divine and humanity come together to mix and make a third thing. It's emptying by addition. Okay, God is becoming weak, so to speak. God the Son, not by um, getting rid of his deity, but by adding humanity to himself. The emptying is a loss of status, and it's a veiling. You see, you wouldn't have looked at Jesus and thought, God. In John chapter 12, John records something remarkable. He says that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. That is, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is transported to the temple, he hears the seraphim singing, holy, 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 and he feels the foundation shaking, and he sees the hem of his robe. Isaiah is saying that he saw the glory of Jesus. Isaiah cries out, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Isaiah saw the glory of the pre-incarnate Son. But when the Son became a man, he emptied himself, that is, he veiled himself. Apart from God's revelation, you wouldn't look at him and think God. You would look at him and think Middle Eastern, Jewish man, rough hands from a, work of, from a life of manual labor. If you heard him teaching, you might think, wow, and he's a really good teacher. But you wouldn't look at him and think God. A stack of uh, 100s, 100s in a currency stack makes $10,000. Okay, if I gave you, if I had them here, you would see them, you would know its value. If I gave them to you and you walked around Memphis with them, I don't care if you're in Memphis or Millington, you will get robbed. <laughs> People, they see the value, they know it, they want it. But if you took that same cash, those two stacks, 20 grand, and you put them in a brown paper bag, you wouldn't know the value. You could walk around all of Memphis and you probably wouldn't be bugged. If you were, it wouldn't be because you're carrying, you know, a lunch bag. And what's happening is you're taking something of value and you're veiling it behind something that's ordinary. Okay, something that other people might look like trash. Well, God the Son emptied himself, not by ridding himself of his deity, but by adding to himself in such a way that strips him of his rights and veils him of his true identity. And he adds to himself human weakness, limitations, and shame. And so begins the condescension, the humiliation, the descent of God the Son. That though he was in the form of God, he assumes the form of a slave. I've said this before, but the word here, doulos, it means slave. And the CSV translators, they understandably have rendered it servant because they're wanting to distance the word from our understanding of slavery, chattel slavery, colonial slavery. The problem here, though, is it it blunts the meaning, okay? Jesus took on the form of a slave. He didn't become a servant or butler or someone's help. He became someone with no rights. God became 
a slave. Moving from CEO to intern would look like a promotion compared to this. There is no larger gap in their minds between God, the one with all rights, and a slave, one without any. Paul tells us the form of slave, it simply means that he takes on the likeness of humanity. That means he was made like us in every way except for sin. You could look at Hebrews 2, 17 and 4, 15 later. The son assumes the form of a slave. He takes on the likeness of humanity. He becomes a man. That means just as Jesus is in the form of God, expressing the nature of God, well, now he's in the form of a man. Everything that it means to be human, Jesus is, apart from sin. He takes on a body, a soul, with all of its human weaknesses, limitations, shame. Have you ever considered the shame that comes with being a human? And the humiliation that God the Son would have taken on and experienced for the first time. If you have a baby or have been around young babies, you know that just in the first couple days of God the Son's human existence, as a babe, he would have defecated himself. It's a shameful thing to say and embarrasses us, but the incarnation itself was an act of humiliation. That the holy and pure one soils himself. For the first year of his life, the eternally glorious one would have spat all over himself. That the one who is eternally wholly independent becomes dependent on his mother for life and food. That according to his divinity, he, he holds the cosmos together. But in his humanity, he clings to his parents for life and protection. That though he knows all things according to his divinity, according to his humanity, he had to learn his name. The eternal word had to learn to speak. That his body grew tired. He had to sleep. People didn't like him. He felt the full gambit of human emotions, needs, limitations, temptations. You see, in Jesus Christ... The eternal one wraps himself, the infinite one wraps himself in finite. The eternal one enters time, the spirit takes on flesh, the creator becomes a creature, God becomes a slave. If you recall the Philippians like us, they're obsessed with title, status, likes, followers, promotion, standing, and it dictated how they related to each other. They were constantly jockeying for social status, um, which was something that was basically assigned in Philippi as a Roman colony. And Paul is saying, rather than asking, how can I exalt myself at the cost of others, behold the humility of God, that he would relinquish his rights, his privileges, his prerogatives. No one has ever gone from higher to lower for the benefit of others. What does it look like to consider others more than yourself, to consider their interests? Behold the God who became a slave for his people. Verse 7, and when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Hey, Hunter, can you do me a big favor and get my water bottle that's behind you? Sorry. 
And when he came as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The incarnation is just the first step in the humiliation of Jesus. It's steep, but it's a decline. It's a descent. It's gradual. God becomes a slave that is a man. And when he had come as a man, he took it one step further. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Notice Paul says this act, that it, this humbling, it's an act of obedience. To whom? Not to Rome, not to the religious leaders, not to his disciples or the crowds. It's an act of obedience to the Father. This is vividly seen in the garden, kind of the antithesis of Adam grasping and seizing for equality with God. Jesus, knowing what will soon happen to him, prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The son is bringing his human will in submission to the will of the father and to his own divine will in that sense. So while Jesus, yes, was betrayed by the religious leaders, he was crucified by Rome, the crowds shouted that he be put to death. Paul is pulling the curtains back, so to speak, and he considers it from the perspective of God. From this perspective, Jesus is not a victim. He's an atoning sacrifice. His face was set for Jerusalem in obedience to the will of the Father. He came for redemption, to pay the penalty for the sins of his people publicly. Jesus died on the cross as an act of obedience to the will of the Father, to save a people from their sins. There's this caricature that often comes out in, I think, people's preaching or maybe when they share the gospel. And it's kind of this God versus Son caricature. It's like the angry father... And then the loving son steps in the way to save us. Now it's true that the triune God is angry with sin. His wrath remains among sinners. But friends, it was the father who in eternity past chose us. He was the father, and as a father, I can't imagine this, who asks his only unique beloved son to come to undergo humiliation and punishment to save that people. The Son comes at the behest of the Father. This is the gospel, that on the cross, God, the Son incarnate, died as a substitute for our sins. That he perfectly on our behalf. That he then died paying the punishment that we deserve. That he rose from the dead. That God offers his life freely. In obedience to the Father, the Son exchanged a glorious crown for a bloody thorn one. The praises of the seraphim for the mocking of sinners. The glories of heaven for the gore of a cross. The pleasure of God for his punishment. An exalted status for a lowly one. Friends, behold our God, the humble one. We turn now to consider... Sorry. Is there, is there more mind-boggling reality, right, that though he was and is existing in the form of God, equal with God, he didn't take advantage of his rights? That he gave up those rights and made himself nothing by becoming a man and dying in our place? His death was an act of obedience to the Father, and it's the next step in this point, this descent, this condensation of humiliation, he humbles himself to the point of death, and then Paul really stresses it here and says, even to death on a cross. You see, crucifixion was a shameful thing in Roman culture. 
It wasn't something you talked about, like, hey, did you see the big gladiator match this weekend? And did you see all the people dying, gasping for air on crosses on the way into work today? It actually was, it was a curse word. You didn't talk about it in polite company. And it was very rare that a Roman would be crucified because they had rights. If they did something warranting execution, they would be decapitated. So by their standards, very humane, quick. Um, but slaves were crucified. It wasn't just punishment. It was slow, painful, and shameful. Crucifixion was considered a slave's death. Okay, it's not something you did to a Roman, it's something you did to a slave. Earlier I said there's no greater gap in their minds between a God and a slave. I was wrong. There's no greater gap in their minds between the living God dying a slave's death. We're so used to crosses, right? They're ubiquitous or ordinary. We use them as a means of adoration in our churches, in our bodies, on our jewelry. I'm not saying those things are bad. But it's hard for us to grasp just how shocking it is that God the Son died on the cross. It's a thing of punishment, and what Paul is especially stressing here, I think, is it's a thing of humiliation. It might be helpful to think of something that we can more easily grab a hold to, um, culturally, contextually, historically. Something that for us is more scandalous, something that captures how misplaced it is for God the Son to hang and die like a slave in a criminal. You could think of the cross as the lynching of God. He's seized by an angry mob. He's unfairly tried. He's stripped naked. He's beaten until he's unrecognizable. And he's hung naked on a tree to die like a slave. Behold the humility of our God. As we sang earlier, God, eternal, humbled to the grave. The living one, dead. The eternal word, silenced. Why? To save a people from that very wrath. The very sinners who would hang him to die. And so the humiliation, the emptying, the veiling is complete. You see, you don't look at a bloody, lifeless corpse hanging from a cross and think, God. You say, what a shame. I wonder what that criminal did to deserve that. Friends, consider again what God the Son did for us. That though he is God, he didn't hold on to his rights. Instead, he took on humanity, subject to its weaknesses and limitations. And if that weren't enough, he took it a step further. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, consider the Son's humiliation. We turn now to consider his exaltation. Verse 9, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. We see the result of the son's obedience. He tells us there in verse 9, look at it. For this reason, God highly exalted him. That is for his obedience as God the son incarnate, the mediator of his people, his humble submission to the father's will, even to the point of death on a cross that God has highly exalted him. You see, the God-man merits his exaltation, his name, his universal dominion and praise. But the question is, to where is he exalted? If you recall verse 6, he is in the form of God. He possesses a quality with God. 
There's no going higher than when he, where he was. There's no promotion above God, no throne higher, no higher degree of worth. You see, the son returns to his God glory with all of its rights and prerogatives. And the name that's given to him will help clarify this. Did you catch that? For this reason, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what's the name given to Jesus, the name in which every knee will bow? There are two options here. The first one's in verse 10, and it's Jesus. Right in the text reads, um, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And that's a possibility it's kind of harder to see because in the Greek, or I'm sorry, in the English, the way it's translated, it looks like the name which is Jesus or the name Jesus. But in the Greek, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say the name Jesus or the name which is Jesus. It's the name of, it's possessive. That is the name that belongs to Jesus. Okay, so if I pointed to my van and I said, the van of John. Now, it's a weird way to talk, but you wouldn't look to the van and say, hi, John. <laughs> You would know it's the van belonging to John. It's possessive. So this name could be Jesus, but what it's saying right there is the name that belongs to Jesus. To that, every knee will bow. The second option is found in verse 11, and it's what everyone confesses, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, the word here is kurios in Greek, and it's how, if you're looking at the Septuagint, which is... Um, it's the Greek Old Testament, and it's what the apostles would have used. It's what Jesus would have most likely read from. The personal name Yahweh in Hebrew is translated 6,000 times to this word, kurios. Okay? It's the personal name of God. Paul is applying it directly to Jesus, and he's saying that one day everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. What makes this option... Um, the, better, the better option, in my opinion, is that Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 45. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there, Isaiah chapter 45. Paul is quoting this, and he's applying it directly to Christ. Beginning in verse 18, 18 and 25, it's a longer text, but it's worth reading in its entirety. Isaiah 45, verses 18 through 25. For this is what the Lord, that is Yahweh says, the creator of the heavens, the God who formed the earth and made it, the one who established it. He did not create it to be a wasteland, but formed it to be inhabited. He said, I am the Lord, that is Yahweh, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret somewhere in a land of darkness. I did not say to the descendants of Jacob, seek me in a wasteland. I am the Lord, that is Yahweh, who speaks righteously and declares what is right. Come, gather together and approach you fugitives of the nations. Those who carry their wooden idols and pray to a God who cannot save have no knowledge. Speak up and present your case. Yes, let them consult each other. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord, Yahweh? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. Truth is gone from my mouth. A word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. And every tongue will swear allegiance. 
It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are found only in the Lord, Yahweh. All who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. All the descendants of Israel will be justified and boast in the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh promises salvation and states that to me, Yahweh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Paul takes that and he applies it directly to Jesus and calls him Lord, Kurios, the translation of Yahweh. And Paul is saying, just as it was prophesied one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before the Lord. So to what heights is God the Son exalted? What name and rule is he given? It's the name of Yahweh. The Son is exalted to his previous glory, but this time as the God-man. This time he merits it. He merits his throne by virtue of his priestly work, by virtue of his humble submission to the Father. If you consider this, especially in an election year to think about, most rulers, they come into power by power, okay? If you look at the history, especially just of rulers or other countries, they kill, they bully, they politic, they use money, connections, they lie, they throw dirt. And then when they rule, they typically rule for themselves or rule in such a way that they can keep being elected. But Jesus comes into power by weakness, into his kingly rule by, his, by virtue of his priestly work, he lays himself down for his people. And so God exalts him and restores him to his God glory. Only this time it says, God the Son incarnate, the God-man. Meaning that the God-man is on the throne of heaven. What was once hidden to everyone who saw Jesus will be made plain to all. That he is indeed God the Son. There will be no question about his identity, his status, his worth when he returns. The equality that he possesses with God will be on display for all to see. Notice again verse 10, Paul says that every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is saying that every intelligent, living or dead creature, Christian or otherwise, everyone, including Nero, who calls himself the Kurios, the Lord of all the world, everyone will bend a knee to Jesus. They will confess that he is indeed the Lord. It's a remarkable thing to think about, especially in um, an election year, right? Has there ever been a time, other than the Civil War, that our country has been so divided that there is... Uh, so much vitriol? Has it ever been more partisan? Have people ever taken it more personally when you vote for someone else? That means that you must hate me, right? I suspect that our votes will be split this year and that they will continue to be split until Jesus returns. But friends, when Christ comes back, there will be no campaigning, no fundraising, no debating, no voting, and no disappointment, Jesus Christ, the God-man, will rule as Lord over heaven and earth. And it will be undisputed and without end. His worthiness as king will be on full display for all to see. For the Christian, this will be a joyful event, right? We'll finally see our Lord and Savior as he is in all of his majesty and glory. The one who lived and bled and died on our behalf. We'll see him just as he is. And friends, we won't be able to hit our knees fast enough. We won't be able to get the words out of our mouth quickly enough that Jesus is Lord. All will bend a knee 
Christians, those saved by the blood of Christ, those trusting in him, they will bend a knee joyfully, lovingly, in worship. Others, the enemies of God, will do so out of compulsion as they gnash their teeth. You see, they won't deny that he's the only true and worthy king. They won't revolt, but their submission won't be a joyful one. They will see the one they rebelled against ruling in all of his righteousness. And they will live apart from that righteousness for all of eternity. If you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, we would implore you on God's behalf to bend a knee to Jesus now. To consider God's love on full display for you. That God the Son became a slave, became a man, died on the behalf of sinners, that he rose from the dead, that he is ruling as king, that he will return, and he offers you life and forgiveness. All you need to do is turn from your sins and trust in him. Behold God's extraordinary love for you. Is there anyone like our God? God becomes slave, become man, humbles himself to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The son is vindicated, he will be exalted, and he does it all for the glory of the Father. You see, this text ought to produce in us humility, that's what Paul's going after, it's ethical, but it's also doxological. It ought to lead to us worshiping God as we see who he is and what he's done on our behalf. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up now. I think it's appropriate that we go right into song, that we worship God for who he is. I'm going to read just a few lines from the hymn that we'll be singing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And I hope that we do this both as a time of reflection and as a means of application to this sermon. Verse 1, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. In the dawning of the King, he the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death the God of life, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Friends, we long for the day and until that day we worship him. Stay with me and let's, let's sing now.